Father in heaven, we're so grateful to thee, to be in thy house in this day and to feel the warmth of fellowship that we can share together, to be taught from thy word in the Bible class, and to be encouraged and admonished in, in the ways that we should live our Christian life here below. Lord, we're thankful that we have the privilege to be here unmolested of our government and to spend time in your word. And so, Lord, we would look forward to those blessings in this day. Pray that you'd put all the distractions of this world uh, at bay so that we could be focused on the message that would be appropriate for each of our lives. And Lord, we do want to uplift these dear ones that have been um, captured in, in Haiti and, and now the ransoms and all kinds of other nefarious things going on. Lord, pray that you would be their protector. Pray that you would be the peaceful um, hand over that situation, Lord, to bring it to a a speedy and a, a good result. Lord, pray that they could be restored back, not just to their mission work, but to their families. And Lord, we're thankful for the good news from Brother Vic that he is off the ventilator and can begin, can continue a, a road to recovery. But Lord, we're mindful of how steep that road may be and pray that you'd watch over him, give him encouragement. Pray that the rest of his family would be encouraged and um, could have patience and strength to, to walk with him as he stays on that road to recovery. Lord, thankful that so many could gather with us today, but still mindful of those that can't be here, and pray that you'd be their um, encouragement and their teacher in this day as well. And for it all, Lord, we'll thank thee in advance. And pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> uh, I was struggling a bit as to where to look this morning and, and what scriptures to share. And... Um, I was, we were in Beverly Hills last week and really had a blessed, blessed time there. And the scripture that we opened, I thought, well, there's no real need to read that again. But this morning when I got up, and this happened last Sunday morning, as the same thing happened. There was this verse that I was going to share last Sunday morning in Beverly Hills, and I wasn't so sure, you know, you need some encouragement. And when I got up in the morning, as is often my practice as a part of my devotions, I'll, I'll look at the the Bible app on my phone, and there's a verse of the day. And last week, the verse of the day was the exact verse that I had planned to use in the morning service. This morning, when I woke up, the verse of the day was one that I was kind of considering and not really sure if this is the direction we should go. And when I opened it, it said, 1 John chapter 2, verse 6, and it says, "...that he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked." And so I'll take it as a direction from the Lord that he would like us to look um, at a scripture that I looked at last week, but that'd be chapter 5 of the book of Mark, or the epistle of Mark. Mark chapter 5. And actually, we start a little bit before that at the end of chapter 4. And the context is to walk um, through what feels like a day with Christ and to see the interactions that he had with a variety of different people, and to kind of analyze what was Christ's reaction in his interactions with folks. I'll start and stop as we go through this this morning, and, and just pray that the Lord would um, direct where we're supposed to emphasize. Um, Jesus had just finished preaching on one side of the Sea of Galilee, and in verse, this will be verse 37 of chapter 4. He has gone into a ship. This was where he had been in a ship because of the press. The people were all around him and were asking him to, to teach them. And so he stepped into a boat. Now he's done preaching. And verse 37 says, And there arose a great storm of wind, 
and the waves beat into the ship so that it was now full. And he was in the hinder part of the ship, asleep on a pillow, and they awake him, and said unto him, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he arose and rebuked the wind, and said unto the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said unto them, Why are ye so fearful? How is it that ye have no faith? And they feared exceedingly, and said one to, said one to another, What manner of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Just stop for a moment at the end of chapter 4. So this passage we know so, so well. This is the, you know, we sing songs in the gospel hymns about this particular passage. But I wonder what it was like to be the disciples, that you're here with the master, he's just finished a big sermon, preached to all of these, I don't know how many, but we'll call it a thousand people, let's just suggest. And he asks you to go into the boat and to cross the Sea of Galilee. Now, the Vanderland series that we had been doing the last couple of weeks was giving, I, I thought, gives me a, a much better appreciation for what kind of what kind of terrain that was. I mean, we talked about the Jordan River and how this really wasn't, I don't know, I just keep comparing everything to Nine Mile Creek lately because that's what I'm driving past on my project trips. It wasn't the raging, or it wasn't the, the calm, you know, Mississippi wide open river that we, we see sometimes. But the Sea of Galilee is a very large lake. It's the largest freshwater lake in Israel, but it's almost round. Where our finger lakes are very narrow and, and, and long, this is, I just looked it up earlier, 13 miles long by 8 miles wide. And so this path that they were going to take was an 8 mile sail or row across the lake. And if you think about that, that's, that's a little bit longer than going the full length tip to tip of Otisco. And you're going to do that in a storm. And in the meantime, Jesus is falling asleep in the boat. And the disciples wake him up going, first of all, who can sleep in a boat? We've got kids that could fall asleep in a boat pretty well. I know some of the rest of us have, have that gift where, you know, the, the waves will put you right to sleep. This wasn't that passive, peaceful little trip um, through the islands or on the lake. This is a raging storm and Jesus is asleep. And he's awakened by the disciples and said, Lord, what, don't you care that we're going to die? And his, he doesn't rebuke them first. Does he? Wait a second. Maybe I'm even reading that wrong. He rebukes the wind. Peace be still. The reaction from the disciples has to be one of relief. But rather than just it being relief, then he comes to him and says, how are you so fearful? Why are you so fearful? Didn't you have any faith? And admittedly, I think it's an understandable reaction. They feared and said unto one another, what manner of man is this? They've started off this day. If this, let's call this is the middle of the night. It's, we're rolling into the early morning, and they start off with a rebuke from the father, or from the teacher. Where is your faith? Going into, verse, into chapter 5, And they came over to the other side of the sea, unto the, sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when they came out of the ship, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Who had been dwelling in the who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no man could bind him, no, not with a chain, but that he had been often bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been plucked asunder by him, and the fetters broken in pieces, neither could any man tame him. 
And always, day and night, he was in the mountains and the tombs, crying and cutting himself with stones. But when Jesus saw afar off, he ran and worshipped him, and cried with a loud voice and said, What do I have to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. Let's stop there for a second. And we talked about this a few weeks ago, but this... This is a shocking story to me, and I, and I just keep coming back to it. This man that, well, let's, let's go this way. Jesus brings his disciples to the other side of the lake. They're probably still a bit shaken from the night before, and as soon as they land on shore, here comes this man out of the tombs. Not out of the caves, not out of a house, but comes out of the tombs. This man who is tormented with an, it says an unclean spirit first, and we'll find out how many unclean spirits. But a demonically possessed man that is so empowered by the devil that he can't even be bound with chains. It says that he'd been, in, I think it's in Luke, says that not only had he been uh, tormented, but for a long time had had these demons possessing him and had run, been running around naked, it says, in and out of the tombs, tormenting all that would encounter him, cutting himself. No man could tame him, day and night crying. I mean, I can't imagine what that looked like, what that experience of encountering somebody like that would be. And Jesus encounters him right, right away. And it says, the way that the sequence reads here, it's, it's a little bit... It sounds like, as we read it, that the demonically possessed man addresses Jesus first. But if you read it carefully, it says, Jesus yells to him, Come out of the man, thou unclean spirit. And the man responds, What do I have to do with thee, Jesus, thou son of the most high God? I adjure thee, or I plead, that you would not torment me. The first thing Jesus does as he sees this man approaching is commands that these demons be cast out of him. And they respond, don't torment us. Don't, I, what do we have to do with thee, Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus, did it say of Nazareth? Jesus, thou son of the most high God. Now, it's probably not a very significant thing, but an interesting thing. At the time, there's a superstition in these encounters with spirits was that whoever identified the other party first had power in the situation. And so just by the way this unfolds, anybody that was watching, any of the, the rest of the folks there, as soon as this spirit says, torment me not, Jesus, thou son of God, or Jesus, thou son of the most high God, the superstition would have read that he, the demon, had power over this situation. And to everyone around would have been watching here going, well, this is the first time that Christ has encountered someone that has, has, has the upper hand. And Jesus kind of doubles down on that and, and plays right into that where he says in verse 9, what is thy name? And the demon answers, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he besought him much that he would not send them away into the country. This is the demon. Now there was there nigh unto the mountains a great herd of swine feeding. And all the devils besought him, saying, Send us into the swine, that we may enter into them. And forthwith Jesus gave them leave, 
And the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, and the herd ran down violently down a steep place into the sea. There were about 2,000 and were choked in the sea. So the scene is unfolding where these folks that are watching are expecting that Jesus is not, doesn't have power in this situation. The only person that really recognizes who is in control is the, are these spirits. Because they say unto him, even after they have to reveal their name, they beseech Jesus, they beg him that he wouldn't cast them out or destroy them completely. It says, um, send them away out of the country. But for some reason, they ask to be thrown into these swine. They ask to be thrown into a herd of pigs. This seems... Seems like a waste to me, right? Why kill all of these pigs? What was the point in killing the pigs? But Jesus honors the requests or is accepting of the requests and sends these demons into the, into the pigs. And the pigs, the first thing that they do is run down the hill and kill themselves. Run down the hill for, for destruction. And shows right so clearly what the intent was of the devil in these situations. In, in, in possessing this man, it was for the destruction of this man. And yet now we can see that that is exemplified and, and bears itself out by the way that he has the, the, these pigs just run down and, and destroy themselves. And again, you're the disciples. You've just had this experience in the sea. You've just come across. Now you're experiencing thousands of demons. It says 2,000. And you're watching this whole thing unfold, probably with shock on your face. And then we continue in verse 14. And they that fed the, the swine fled and told it in the city and in the country that they went out to see what it was that was done. And they came to Jesus and see him that was possessed of the devil and had a legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And they that saw it told them how it befell him that was possessed with the devil and also concerning the swine. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. What kind of reaction is that? You've got the people that feed the swine. They go back and basically start spreading the news of what's just happened. And everybody comes and they see this, this Halloween creature sitting there, clothed, and biggest understatement in this morning's message will be sitting in his right mind. Goes from the scariest thing you could imagine to this man sitting there. I, I love it's not even standing there and preaching. It wasn't that he was singing and making a big commotion or whatever. It's he's sitting there. I just imagine hands folded, legs crossed in his right mind. To go from the most outrageous to the most peaceful that fast because of what Jesus did. And then these people, okay, the folks all around him, what would the expectation be? My expectation I think all of our expectation would be that this would be such an exciting thing. There's no more tormentor running around, cutting himself, throwing himself down, breaking chains, uncontained. It says they're fearful and ask Jesus to depart. What were they fearful of? Who would be fearful to have this thing removed from them? This person, these thousands of demons. And they began to pray him to depart out of their coasts. And when he was coming to the ship, that's Jesus, 
or excuse me, Jesus then is, is going to take his leave of them. And the man that was possessed of the devil, he that was possessed of the devil, prayed him that he might be with him. He wanted to come along. Howbeit Jesus suffered him not, but said unto him, Go, go home to thy friends, and tell them how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath compassion on thee. And he departed and began to publish in Decapolis how, many great, how, many, how great things Jesus had done for him, and all men did marvel. It's, it's another one of those, and we're going to see a couple other, other examples here, how Jesus makes a transformation in someone's life, works a miracle in their life, and then has to give them direction as to how he wants them to go out. Sometimes he says, go out and proclaim it. I think it was Bible class last Sunday uh, was the, the man that was let down through the roof. And he says, go, I think it was, go thy faith hath made thee whole, or thy sins are forgiven thee. Now I'm forgetting which ones because we talked about so many different ones. But there are always different ways that Jesus addressed people. We're going to read one here a little bit later that says, just keep it quiet. Don't, don't go and tell anybody. But for this man that had, had this incredible, miraculous transformation in his life. All he wants to do is to follow Christ. He wants to come along. He wants to live out that First John 2. He wants to walk even as Jesus walked. He wanted to stand right next to him and see exactly how he did that. Exercise himself in a walk of faith that he could see as a mirror image of Christ. And Christ says, you got to stay here. Imagine that, though. He's tell- these people wanted Christ gone because they didn't like what just happened. And Jesus says, by the way, you've got to stay with these people. You've got to tell them what happened to you. For some reason, Christ knew that the more impactful and the more successful witness and ministry was going to take place because of this eyewitness account that this man had had, an experience that he had made and was going to preach now to the- his friends. And we can tell it was successful because it says all men did marvel. So for one man, Jesus endures, makes his disciples endure a storm, cross the lake, get over there, and save this demonically possessed man. And when Jesus was passed over again, so here we go, another eight miles across the lake, into the other side, much people gathered unto him. And he was nigh unto the sea. And behold, there came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet. And besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and and she shall live. And Jesus went with him, and much people followed him and thronged him. So we have another character, more, more folks coming here. And again, I don't know if this is the same day. Eight miles is not that long. So going back and forth across the lake wouldn't have been a huge delay. But just in my mind for this, this is in a very short period of time, I'm going to call it a day. Jesus has gone across, comes back across, I'm assuming right to that same spot where he had been preaching earlier, and here's this man, this ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, so an important man, a, a well-known person, someone that would have had, likely had some kind of entourage around him. He's not a high priest. He would have been, I think when they say a ruler, it's, it's like somebody that would have been a trustee or somebody in charge of the physical building of the synagogue. And so he's, he's there waiting on Christ to come. My question is, I wonder if he was even there the night before when Christ had left to go, go across and, and he'd missed him. 
And he's been waiting for the, this little boat to come back across the lake. And here he's standing at the edge of the water. And immediately as Jesus gets off the boat, there is this man, Jairus, that comes and says, not just says, Jesus, here, let me take you by the collar, but falls on his feet, falls down begging and saying, my little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay hands on her that she may be healed. Desperation. Time is of the essence. We, we've got to go. My daughter is, is, is sick and dying. He knows how close this is to being the end. And he knows that if he can have Jesus, just come and lay hands on him, on her, excuse me, that she'd be healed. And Jesus says, let's go. Show me the way. But it's a mob scene. And a certain woman, verse 25, which had an issue of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered but rather grew worse. When she heard that Jesus was come, came in the press behind and touched his garment. For she said, If I may but touch the clothes, if I may but touch, excuse me, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. This, sorry, I'm doing a lot of starting, starting and stopping. This unfolds like as if you're watching a, a TV show or a movie in some respects. That there's, there's these different characters that you're, you're not, they're all connected, but you don't know the connection until the very end. It's almost imagine the scene break and Jesus and Jairus are walking and, and Jairus is, is kind of pulling them along like, we got to go fast. This is pressing. My daughter's dying. And then just it fades out and you see a focus in on this one woman who knows she's not supposed to be there. She has a medical issue that would have made her unclean in, in Jewish practice. She knows she's not supposed to be there. Her doctors know she's not supposed to be there. She's destitute because she spent all that she had on doctors to try to help her get whatever this was taken care of. And, and it's not worked. She's desperate. But she heard that Jesus was around and said, if I can just touch the thread on the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. There's absolutely, flip anywhere before or after in Scripture, there's no reason for her to have that kind of faith. There was no example before and even after where just simply bumping into Jesus caused, caused healing. It wasn't like there was an example, well, he left a scarf at the, uh, I'm being facetious, not a bus stop, but left a scarf behind at Zacchaeus' house and whoever came afterwards touched the scarf and was healed. There wasn't anything like this. But this woman had the faith that if I could just get that close to him, that I'd be healed. And straightway, so, and she does. Now, mind you, well, we'll get to that because the disciples asked the, the logical question. And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. Immediately, or straightway she healed, feels that. And Jesus immediately knowing in himself that virtue had gone out of him, turned about in the press and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples, and I'll say very reasonably, say unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and thou sayest, Who touched me? And I, it probably makes more sense to ask the question here than it did last week. 
With all of the study we've done on personalities over the last little while, who of the disciples do you think asked that question? I'm thinking Peter. This is a little snarky. It's a little sarcastic. And it's Jesus is standing there, has been bumped into and pulled and prodded and had all of this you know, contact with the mob and then says, who touched me? He doesn't say, who touched me? I sense the virtues gone out of me. He just asks, who touched me? And I don't know, but I'm guessing it's Peter goes, look around you. You're going to ask us who touched you? I mean, everybody. All of us did. But then there's this, this moment of, of searching. Jesus looks around to see her that had done this thing. And the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done to her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. This sequence, again, we've zoomed out. Jairus, we'll talk about him in a second. He's standing on the sidelines. Jesus, I don't know if he yells out, but he says out with a voice, loud voice, Who touched me? Or did he say, Who touched me? Well, the woman's fearing and trembling, wondering what's going on. Has to, uh, uh, he's looking around with this intense gaze all through the, the crowd to find out who it was. And all of a sudden, he locks in on her. And she, fearing and trembling, comes and falls down and says what had happened. And Jesus responds to her, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. No, maybe this is an obvious statement and maybe there's another example that works better, but I can't think of a better example of someone's faith. The grain of a mustard seed making her whole. The impact of that. The faith that if I just get close enough to touch him. She could have said, if he would just see me, just lock eyes with me, I'd be made whole. It, it didn't matter. This was the example to her that all she needed was the proximity and the touch of the master to be made whole. And then not quite understanding exactly what his response was going to be and, and not understanding how he, would, how he could sense virtue going out of him. How just simply her faith would draw that healing out of him. And while he yet spake, so as Jesus is saying this, there come from the ruler of the synagogue's house, from Jairus' house, certain that said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? So the screen moves over and all of a sudden we see Jairus again. Jesus is saying, Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go and be free of thy plague. Don't bother the master anymore. Your daughter's dead. Don't, don't bother him anymore. How these things are unfolding, the timing of all this, the, the disciples, you know, Peter, whoever, disciples making these comments to Christ, there's a crowd still going around. They're trying to process how, is in, how in the world is it that this woman, just by touching him, after all of us did, there's probably other people that had things that needed to be healed in that day, other problems that they were dealing with that could have used the touch of the master, but this one was fixed in this day at that time, and all of a sudden they come back and say, don't bother Jesus anymore. Your daughter's dead. If I'm Jairus, what's my reaction? What's your reaction? I understand that this woman had an issue. 
But Lord, she's had it for 12 years. 12 years in a day, 12 years in an hour more, it wasn't going to make that big of a difference. My daughter is dying. And we spent this little bit more time wasted here to deal with this thing. It doesn't take long for your mind to go a lot of different ways. And I put myself in his shoes and, and imagine what, how intense my desire would be and my persistence would be to get him to come and, and take care of my daughter. And yet this thing, as miraculous and beautiful and impressive as it was, takes place that delays him from getting there. And as soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he says unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. I almost imagine grabbing him by the shoulders, telling, making sure that he's focusing on him, focusing his eyes. Do not be afraid, only believe. Now again, there wasn't a reason for him to have this kind of faith that this was still going to work. Lazarus hadn't been raised from the dead yet. He didn't know that story. He just told this woman, your faith has made you whole. And he's basically telling Jairus the same thing. He's like, I need you to have faith. Don't be, afa- don't be afraid. Have faith. Believe. And he suffered no men to follow him, save Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogues, and to see the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he came in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. Now the, the group has changed. The, the crowd that had been following, the multitude, the, the mob that was there and was pressing and, and just coming to see some new thing, he's, he set them at bay. And he's even said to his other disciples, he's like, I'm taking the, the key three. You three come with me. Jairus, Peter, James, and John, you, the three, you guys come with me. We're going to go separate ourselves. And he comes to the house, and there's these professional mourners. I think we talked about a few weeks back. These folks that were hired. Now, the timing of this is a little interesting to me because if the daughter just died, I don't know how long it took to actually get to his house, but the mourners were already there. These folks that were paid to wail. Paid... Nobody knew what a dead body looked like more than the mourners. This was what they were there. Maybe the undertaker knew better, but beyond that, these are the folks that are around dead bodies all the time, and Jesus, this man that they know nothing about, other than that's the teacher that Jairus brought, says, why are you weeping? Aside from it's our job, why are you weeping? The damsel's not dead. She's just sleeping. And they laughed him to scorn. Now, they went from weeping to laughing and mocking that quickly, which, again, that's got to be an experience. I, I don't know what that would be like. But in any case, he la- they laughed him to scorn, and Jesus just puts them out. Mother, Father, Peter, James, and John, stay here, and everybody else get out. And he taketh the father, the mother, the damsel, and them that were with him, sorry, being redundant, and entered into, the, into where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumi, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve years, and they were astonished with great astonishment. 
He puts everybody else out. Sends them all out of the room. And goes and takes this little girl. Takes her hand. And says, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. Quietly. Not like he was yelling at the demons to get out. Not as I'm imagining he said, who touched me? But just in, in the quiet and in the peacefulness and in the isolation of the, just a few people here to witness it, he asks this little girl to rise and she does. She, arise, she arose and walked. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it and commanded that something should be given her to eat. I don't know, in the, in the grand scheme of the things that had happened on this day, in the, in the miracles that had taken place, perhaps the most impressive one, the most uh, powerful one to me would be to, to give life again. To raise this little girl back to life. And yet, that's the one that he's told, telling them, don't tell anybody about this. Don't make a big show. Give her something to eat. We go from... The scariest person I can think of to the most peaceful, innocent person in the course of a little bit of time. I'm going to suggest a day. And yet Christ's interaction was different in every single one. And his, his direction to the people that he walked with was different in each and every one. And the, the suggestion to me and what, what continues to come to me, and this verse, some of you, I think we'll get there at some point in our Vanderland series again. But you may remember that the, he quoted this verse a number of times in the steps of the rabbi is the series that we had watched. In the foot, I think it's the footsteps of the rabbi or the steps of the rabbi. And it was talking about how he, his disciples, how Jesus walked his disciples through um, through their teachings with him, and he continued to quote this, and he that saith he abideth in him ought himself also even to walk, excuse me, ought himself to walk even as he walked. And we asked, what does that look like? What does it look like to walk our Christian walk like Christ did? And I guess the answer to me that's come over the last little while of study of this, it doesn't look the same every day. We each have a style. We each have... A personality. We, we each have characteristics that might make us, our char- personality traits and habits and things that we've uh, learned or uh, things that we've been raised to appreciate that make us walk one way or the other. Actually, let's talk about that for a second. You ever notice how families, some even, yeah, families often have similar gates? Some folks walk similar to each other. I'm not going to point out specific examples, but you all can think about how many fathers and sons walk similarly. There's a kind of a running joke in our family that dad, when you go to Home Depot with dad, you got to keep up because he just like really walks fast and hard at Home Depot. And it, all, it, it stresses Andrew out more than anybody. And you'd think that's funny because the tallest of them, the tallest of us, has trouble keeping up with Dad. The rest of us are just used to it. That walk is, is similar. We know that walk. We can follow him. We, we know we got to kind of keep up. 
If we want to walk like Christ, we have to see how he did. What, what did it look like? Recognize that as he was, you know, he was God, but he was man when he was here. And he was being obedient to the direction of the Lord. He was being obedient to the word. He was being obedient to God's inspiration in his life. As the Spirit gave direction, we should be doing the same thing. If I don't know how to walk, I should walk even as he walked. Well, I don't know how he would walk in this situation. You know what? This is going to tell me. And the Spirit's not going to contradict that. Those things are going to be in lockstep with each other. Keeping with the footsteps analogy. And I can say that my reaction, I like my reaction, and I have a propensity for reacting one particular way. Well, in this as we can see in, in just what we read today, Jesus had a different response to each, individual solu- to each individual situation. But his word to each one was very consistent. It always talked about their faith and asked them to believe. Be not afraid, only believe. I can imagine when he's talking to the man that had the demons cast out, before he left them there to go minister by himself to the rest of the, the folks there at Decapolis, It was, don't be afraid. Tell everybody what happened. Believe what has happened here is because of your faith. Be not afraid, only believe. The women with the issue, your faith has made you whole. You don't have to be afraid anymore. You don't have to be an outcast anymore. You don't have to run away and be be fearful that this isn't ever going to be taken from you. It's gone. Don't be afraid. Just believe. Tell everybody what happened. Jairus, before he even gets a chance to see the miracle... Jesus is saying to him, do you understand what you've seen over the last couple of weeks? Do you understand what you've heard? Do you understand of the, the faith that had you come to the edge of the water and ask for me to come? That's the faith I need you to hold on to right now. Don't be afraid. Just believe. And I don't know what that looks like for, for each of us. There are things, there, there are different things for each of us that put fear in us. And things that would distract us or would uh, depress us or would want to take our focus away. Distract is when we were talking this morning about our prayer life and, and how sometimes there are distractions that come in and our minds wander. We all know what those things, I know what those things are for me. And right off the bat, I can tell you, you know what are those things that you're fearful of or that would distract you, that want to take your attention away. To not have the faith that God is in control of all things. And that he's reliable. That's a terrible way to say it. But that we can rely on him. And as an encouragement for me, even just as I you know, got the verse again this morning, if I want to walk, if I want to say that I abide in him, if I want to say that I'm his disciple, if I want to say that I'm a follower of Christ, then my walk has to be the same way that his was. That it is reliant on the Spirit to give me the direction and to give me the power to be obedient and to act as he would act. And then at the end of the day, make sure that we're humble enough to say that these things were from him. Thank God. If, if, there, if any good came of it, thank God. We, we were talking this morning about how we, we make the comment that I'll, I'll pray for you, or the thoughts and prayers comment, that we throw it out there kind of flippantly. Oh, thoughts and prayers. How many times do we say, 
Well, Lord, we thanked. If there's any good thing, well, thank God for it. I think most importantly, as I've meditated upon this the last little while, is, is understanding that if any good thing comes out of our walk, it is, it's because of God. It's because of his empowerment in our lives. And we have to be so careful. We can be thankful for being used, but recognize that the power is not of us, but of Christ. May the Lord bless these words.